Well, thanks, Yuying. I, I found out from her about eight months ago that I was supposed to be here like in two or three weeks, and I, you know, that's tentatively been booked a long time in advance. But unfortunately, you know, I had something in conflict, so she's very gracious to give me another opportunity to come. So I know many people here have great friends, and it's really a pleasure. You know, how can somebody run a lipid clinic in a hospital be, you know, involved in the American Heart and all that? I'm, I'm kind of someone looking for a home here. <laughs> this is really all basic science today, and actually, that's where my heart really is. It's in the laboratory. And even though I still see patients and I really oversee clinical programs at the university involved nationally and internationally in kind of guidelines, I'm part of the cholesterol guidelines, like them or not. <laughs> so, so you can all throw darts after attending through them repeatedly be at dinner last night. So I'm, I'm used to getting stuck. But anyway, all that aside, uh, I, I was pleased to co-chair the Lifestyle Guidelines, too, with John Jacisi from Pittsburgh, who's a physical activity guy. I did the nutrition end. But because cholesterol got so much attention, lifestyle just went and flew right by. So there wasn't too much concern about the, new, the Lifestyle Guidelines related to diet and physical activity. Well, anyway, it's great always to come back to Columbia and I'm involved in one of Ira's uh, you know, external advisory committees that was here a short time ago. And uh, it's always great. Many friends here. Thank you for the invitation. So I'm going to kind of, looks like i got to point this way. We thought this was working. And it is. So just to make sure I don't forget, I have the same slide again. These are the kind of the people that have contributed to the signs I'm going to present today. How long we've shown on the right is really uh, a major player in the science I'm going to be sharing with you. I should indicate up front that most of what I'm going to share with you today is unpublished. Some of it's under review currently, some of it's getting ready to be submitted. So I'm going to share a little bit about the history of this project so everybody's on the same page. But much of what I'm going to share today is unpublished. All right, so let's, let's start with kind of the, the issue of lipoproteins in the brain. And Hong and I just, this got published this week, in fact, this is just out now, and friends and endocrinologists have it. What this diagram basically shows is the complexity of, of the parenchymal or CSS space in the central nervous system, which in fact involves lipoproteins. And I think, you know, as we thought about this and, and responded to cell press's request to do something in this space, I mean, I'm, I'm really not a lipoprotein synthesis and, and kind of uh, scientists in the neuroscience space, but nevertheless, we kind of reviewed the literature in relationship to what I'm going to talk to you today about, and that's LPL in the brain. So the concept here is, is that small HDL probably crosses the blood-brain barrier and gets into the CSF. And the type of HDL you find in the brain is some that's APOE-containing, some of it, and that's basically the larger particles, and much of it is A1 or APOJ-related. We're not quite sure what APOJ does, but clearly it goes up with aging. It's probably related to neurodegenerative disease in some way. But nevertheless, we think that HDL can traverse the blood-brain barrier and actually can lead to modifications in lipid and lipoprotein metabolism within the parenchymal and CSF space. But much of the lipoproteins that are made in the central nervous system come from astrocytes. And astrocytes make APOE. And APOE is relevant because APOE relates to Alzheimer's disease. The strongest predictor and risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is having APOE4 genetically. One allele increases the risk from three to fourfold. Your homozygous, that's a risk that's nearly 100% and age-related occurring at an earlier age. 
Now, it's interesting because although the anthracites make apome and apoj and they're involved with kind of HDL formation in the brain, there's also LDL in the space. And, and nobody's quite sure how it gets there. But there's no apoB synthesis in the central nervous system. So if LDL gets there, it's got to traverse in some way and get into the space. But that whole transport process is really unclear. And John Beachy showed many years ago that almost all cholesterol in the brain is made in the brain. And the half-life is like five and six years of cholesterol made in the brain. So there's not much turnover of cholesterol in the central nervous system. But our interest in the nervous system comes from the involvement of blood protein lipase, which is shown down here with the glycic According to what Steve Young tells us, although LPL is anchored by a HDL binding protein in the capillary walls of all tissues that make LPL in the body, there's none of this peptide in the brain. So one of the big questions that comes up is, if, if LPL is in the brain, how is it anchored? Where does it find itself? And how does it access the substrate, which is the triglyceride-rich particles? So basically what I've done, just to set the stage for what's going to follow here, is really outline what Hong and I considered the major unanswered questions about lipoproteins in the brain. First, what's the role of the neuron in the synthesis and regulation of lipoprotein metabolism? We know that particles that are made by the astrocyte or are found in the brain can bind to cell surface receptors on neurons. But that whole processing and what the biological consequences of that is is unclear. The second, can different lipoprotein particles enter neurons and be recognized by self-surface markers? Evidence supports this, but what's this pathway and how is it regulated? What are the major functions of the lipoproteins in the brain? They don't seem to be necessary. All the cholesterol is made in the brain. It's really not transported. I mean, HDL gets there. But again, brain cholesterol turnover is very, very slow and prolonged, whereas the cholesterol in HDL has a half-life of probably several days in the systemic circulation. And is it really the lipoproteins? Are they really lipid delivery vesicles, or are they carrying other molecules that ultimately allow access through the blood-brain barrier? Keep in mind, as far as we know, these big particles, the triglyceride particles, don't really traverse into the spinal fluid. So if LPL is really working in the brain, it's going to be working in the vascular compartment and probably not endocytosis particles into the brain brain. A big question, although there's a ton of work going on in APOE4, it's still not entirely clear whether this is oligomerization or A-beta, whether in fact it modifies the clearance. And certainly if you look at transgenic mice that are knocked out of APOE and then are, are knocked in with either E2, E3, or E4, the E4 phenotype confers a cognitive impairment and a neurobehavioral alteration. So there's something about the E4 protein that modifies A-beta accumulation, either again by oligomerization or ultimately modifying the clearance of A-beta. And finally, the important question that we're interested in is fatty acids, how do they get to the brain? And do they get there through albumin-bound FFA uptake and accumulation, or are lipoproteins the pathway by which they get there? All, I think, important and unanswered questions. So I'm going to bring Coles to Newcastle, a protein you know well here from Iris' work. But let me just review that briefly with you. LPL is a 55 kb protein, glycosylated, which is about 8% of its molecular weight, highly conserved between species. In fact, it has 25% sequence homology to vitelligenin, the APL protein. It's part of the Siri-Nesserase gene family, shares sequence homology with hepatoglycase, endothelolipase, and pancreatic lipase. And all these enzymes share the same catalytic triad. 
By the way, feel free to interrupt at any time. All right, so here's the biology of LPL like we've known it for many, many years. It's bound to this glycocalyx, and, and you know, from Ira's work and others, we know that heparin sulfate proteoglycans also bind LPL, but this is the protein that Steve Young's group has identified, and families that lack this are severely hypertrichosardemic. So presumably this is a protein that does have relevance. Although the animal models are somewhat confusing in terms of the biology of this. And that in the fed state, there's not much difference than the fasting state. I'm not sure you quite understand the exact role of this protein. But nevertheless, these are the triglycerides particles. LPLs bound to surface binding for either proteoglycans or GPIFD1. And ultimately, there is involved in oxidizing these particles, releasing fatty acids and monosyglycerols, which are then taken up locally and either stored or oxidized. And one thing people tend to forget is that LPL really is an important enzyme in terms of the generation of this more large buoyant form of HDL, which historically and epidemiologically, epidemiologically tended to be more likely <coughs> to be associated with less cardiovascular disease. But I think let me go tangential for a second. We know from the work of the CETP inhibitors that ultimately, even though you increase HDL levels, <coughs> You're increasing largely the H. Whoops, my bad. You're largely increasing the HDL2 levels, and at least from what we know thus far about these agents, we don't confer benefit from doing this. Now, some of the more potent CTP inhibitors are currently in clinical trials, but those inhibitors not only raise HDL, but they also lower LDL, lipoprotein small a, and all the apoptotic lipoprotein. So I think the story on CTP inhibition is not there yet. But dalcetropib, I think, informs us that ultimately raising HDL alone, and that's this particle here, the large buoyant particle, does not confer benefit in terms of cardiovascular disease events. So here's an EM carried out by Bob Scow many, many years ago at the NIH, showing very nicely using imidacol how many LPL particles surround a chylomicrine. And if I inject you with intralipid or some other triglyceride-rich particle, the half-life is in the range of 10 minutes. So LPL is a very efficient removal system. And as you know, when you eat dietary fat, you peak at around three to four hours, and it comes back to normal by six or seven if you have normal triglycerides. This 12-hour fast for fasting lipids really is basically meant to get by people with hypertriglyceridemia because they, they go higher, they go later, and they don't get back to normal for 12 hours unless they're severely hypertriglyceridemic. All right, so we've uh, really, a couple of years ago, wrote a review, like I or many others have in the field, in terms of the tissue-specific regulation of LPL. And I think it's important to point out, the complex enzyme. It's regulated at multiple steps. And because the enzyme works in the capillary bed, this whole issue of ultimately you know, producing the enzyme, glycosylating it, and getting it transported to the endothelium is a whole biologic process in its own right. It's regulated by nutrition and hormones. It's regulated by a series of interactive proteins, and then we have all these steps of basic LPL biology that need to be taken into consideration. And here are the organs that make it. The liver is extinguished at birth. This is a fetal gene program that gets turned off shortly after birth, and in the adult, LPL is typically not made by the liver. But there's some thoughts and work by Johann Oworks that suggests that maybe fibrates work in part by inducing the fetal gene program in the liver and some of the triglyceride-lowering capabilities of the fibrates may, in fact, be through induction of the LPL gene within the liver. That has not been confirmed, but it yet thought to be important. Now, this is a, a chart 
generated to a large extent by our lab and also many other labs around the world where we're looking at a variety of conditions and ultimately we're looking at how adipose tissue and skeletal muscle are regulated. Fasting tends to modify these enzymes differentially in the two tissues. The insulin effect is clearly up in adipose tissue and for Bob Freestead when he was a medical resident at our institution showed that in skeletal muscle if you get insulin in normal weight people, outcome goes down in muscle. And then we see this variety of regulation by hormones such as estrogen and testosterone and adipose tissue versus muscle. In obesity, basically markedly increased per cell, but insulin resistant. And in skeletal muscle, variably reduced. Diabetes tends to go down in both tissues. So as patients with diabetes get more hyperglycemic or have greater glycemic excursions, healthcare tends to shut down in muscle and adipose tissue. That's an interesting altered regulation compared to many of these other perturbations that are shown here. And then here's the work that really is, is reflecting our own lab only here, and although our a tremendous amount of work in the heart, but this, these are our work with muscle transgenics and skeletal muscle knockout mice that show the differences in phenotype that relates to the tissue-specific regulation. And the point of the last two slides is simply to indicate that LPL is not the same protein in every tissue. And I think this relates to the the, the multiplicity of functions that it has in terms of oxidative metabolism and storage. But then, here's the question that's going to be the basis of the rest of my talk. Why in the heck is LPL in the brain? I mean, I've had no idea about this. And, but ultimately, it's an area we're increasingly interested in and really need help in answering. So I drove back, and you know, if you go to PubMed, you can't find, you can't download the original paper, and I didn't really do extra effort, go get it, print it, and, make a slide of it, but I think the Steins deserve the earliest credit for identifying that LPL is in the brain. And in this paper, back in, in atherosclerosis in 1977, Steins are in Jerusalem, and they identified that during uh, late embryonic development, LPL is very abundant in the brain. And then as the animal is born and weaned, ultimately it falls substantially to lower levels. And that's basically a very descriptive paper that I think they deserve credit for in terms of identifying this, this enzyme in the brain. And then Ira actually, with my shots in the late 80s, published a paper identifying using in situ and I think immunohistochemistry that LPL was in the brain. And we were working at that time here, and Dan Bessison was in the lab. And with Dan, we actually showed that the spinal cord really had much more abundant LPL message and enzyme activity, and I'll show you the activity in the next slide, than the brain. But here's the hippocampus, here's the hypothalamus, here's the pituitary and here's the cerebellum, and here's the cortex. Not much of the cortex, but a lot of message in hippocampus. But look at the cord, and the further you go down the cord, cervical, thoracic, upper uh, abdominal, lower abdominal, and cotoquine, there's a ton of LPL in the brain, I mean in the cord. And we ultimately had funding for a couple of cycles from the NIH to look at the whole regulation of LPL in the peripheral nervous system. And I'm not gonna really go into that today, but. We had the idea that in the peripheral nervous system, maybe LPL was involved in remyelination after nerve injury. And actually had some support, too, from the Multiple Sclerosis Foundation to, to look at this whole arena. But today, we're going to really go to the brain because that's where the interest is greater. This simply shows the effect of LPL distribution in the nervous system, central nervous system, and the effect of feeding. So you see, unlike adipose tissue, the increase with feeding is not much, but it's clearly there, particularly the core. Here's the cotoquina. Here's the uh, lower abdominal cord, upper abdominal, thoracic cord, and you see in the other brain regions no impact of feeding whatsoever on LPL activity. 
But in fact, as you go down the cord, you see not only more abundant activity as the message reflects, but you see a feeding effect, which again, we have, we have not pursued that at all subsequent to this. This work now is 20 years old. And here, the dance work, here's the insight, to very similar to what Iron Mike had published, and here's the, the intense cell distribution. I mean, there's a lot of nuclei in the hippocampus, so it's really not surprising maybe to see more localization here. But we think that there's relevance, and some of the data I'm going to show you today suggests that that's true. So let's now turn to the big question. Why might lipoproteins be important via LPL-mediated hydrolysis in the brain, and how does that relate to what we know about fatty acids in the brain? First of all, saturated and monounsaturated fatty acids are synthesized within the developing brain. And we know that long-chain N-6 and N-3 fatty acids are important to brain development. And there's substantial work to, to indicate that. I'm simply giving you an example here. In the adult brain, at least 3 to 5% of a sterified arachidonic acid and some 5% of brain DHA are replaced daily by dietary intake. And of course, keep in mind now that, that these fatty acid Fatty acids are byproducts of essential fatty acid intake. So linoleic acid and linolenic acid are essential fatty acids that are not synthesized within the human body or the rodent body and ultimately required by dietary perturbation to give source for these long-chain fatty acids in the central nervous system. Then there's some human data uh, a decade ago that shows using PET C11 arachidonic acid, they ultimately showed uptake and they measured in mass in terms of the amount that occurs in gray matter and white matter in the brain, indicating that fatty acids that are in the systemic circulation do in fact get access to the brain, more so in gray matter than in white matter. And data I'm not going to show you today, when I and I worked on our first uh, piece of work in this area that relates to uh, the alpha knockout in the brain, ultimately we showed that fatty acids from lipoproteins do get into the brain and is, are regulated by LTL. Now, when you inject long-chain fatty acids, this is work of uh, Lubici when she was in uh, Luciano Rossetti's lab. When you inject these long-chain fatty acids into the third ventricle and the hypothalamus, you reduce the expression of orexigenic peptides, HRP and NPY. And you also reduce food intake and you lower body weight. So the idea of injecting fatty acids confers a biology that relates to an anorectic type of, of, of picture. And then when this is Dan Lang's work when you inhibit fatty acid synthesis in the, in the hypothalamus by in knocking out or inhibiting fatty acid synthase. You increase the steady state levels of malonyl-CoA, which thereupon decreases food intake and body weight over short intervals. So this complemented the work that Luciano was doing at Einstein. And then further studies indicated that when you reduce the levels of malonyl-CoA and acyl-CoA by virally mediating the overexpression of malonyl-CoA carboxylase, which reduces malonyl-CoA, then you reversibly increase food intake. So there's something going on here about steady state levels of malonyl-CoA, like in the liver, that really regulate fatty acid metabolism and confer signaling in the brain that relates to energy balance. So we've played around for about five years trying to find the right mouse to make a knockout of LPL in the brain. And in fact, uh, you know, this became such a struggle that, uh, that I ultimately was willing to give up, except my daughter, who was a graduate student at the University of Washington in a neuroscience lab, and now is at UC Irvine doing her fifth year postdoc looking for a job. Um, <laughs> she said, Dad, have you, have you thought about the next promoter? And I said, well, I didn't know much about it. So I looked into the next promoter. 
And virtually, we were able to work with the box plant group to get this mouse. So anyway, it's a member of the NeuroD subfamily of the neuronal basic helix transcription factors. It's expressed prominently in differentiating neurons in the dorsal And it's absent, importantly absent, from proliferating neural precursors of the ventricular zone, inner neurons, and most importantly in glial cells. Because LPL, the brain's made by astrocytes and made by neurons. In fact, what we're doing with Matthias Chump now in Munich indicates that when we knock out LPL in the astrocyte, the phenotype is very different than the knockout in the neuron. I'm not going to be able to share that data with you today, but it's an exciting story about how, again, LPL is tissue-specifically regulated. It probably has a different function in terms of how the brain deals with lipoproteins. Importantly, too, these null mutants are fully viable, and there's no obvious phenotype. So this next promoter looked like a good choice, and it's highly expressed in the hippocampus. And by the way, the distribution of necks in the brain is very similar to what is for LPL. So this was something that was all very satisfying in terms of choosing the next Cree mouse to move ahead. So these, some slides are published data. You're going to see very few of these because I'm going to show you mostly unpublished data. So these are animals at six months of age, and Hong had gone on maternity leave, came back after three months, and said, well, I think we have a fat mouse, and we did. So this was exciting. And, uh, you know, suggested she have another baby. No, I didn't. So both the males and the females were, were obese at six months of age. And then we kind of characterize these, and very quickly, this is all published. If you look, if you put these animals on a calorimeter, they don't adapt very well at all. And that's going to relate to some extent to the cognitive abnormalities I'm going to show you in a few minutes. They do adapt, but it takes them a while. If you look at the overall energy balance, they move less. They're physically inactive, and I think that conferred the sustenance of the obese phenotype at six months of age. But keep in mind, these are dated six months. So what we did is we looked earlier in terms of the ontogeny of the obesity phenotype. So here's the wild type in blue, the heterozygote in white, and I'm only showing you data up to six months here for the heterozygotes, because they get obese downstream. And then the homozygous not yet. So you see this increase in body weight occurs somewhere around four months of age, three to four months of age, and, and continues over time. So this is not a time probably where energy expenditure is modified. And we went on to show that if you look at the integrated period of 12 to 22 weeks, and this is the knockout, this is the wild type, yeah, there's a little bit of, of overlap here. But generally, food intake is higher during this period than, in fact, in the wild type. And we think the, the ontogeny of this phenotype is an early increase in energy intake because when we looked at the six-month animals, there was no difference in energy intake. So most people forget this, but if you look at AGRP and its biologic effects, it not only stimulates food intake, but it also reduces energy expenditure. So I think the six-month data reflect the energy expenditure deficit, whereas the early data suggests that food intake mediate the, the phenotype. Now, we then carried out, and these data again are, are new now, but we carried out pair feeding studies to see if we could inhibit the excess weight gain in both male and female mice. And so in the males, pair feeding, so we have wild type ad libitum, wild type pair fed, and knockout pair fed, and ultimately we find that in the males, pair feeding didn't modify the phenotype, and these are data after 34 weeks of age, 38 for the males, 34 for the females. But when we pair fed the females, we, in fact, did prevent the obesity phenotype. So here's this gender difference uh, that relates, and by the way, in, in rodents, I mean, most of you who work with genetically modified animals, this male-female difference comes up in a wide variety of settings, and here it is again. 
So then we, we, we looked at actually Hong Wong and her birch award support, looked at the sex-dependent regulation of ERF of message expression in the hypothalamus. And what we find is the wild type should knock them out and the ER alpha message goes up and in the knockouts we see the same thing, a major increase in the LPL knockouts in terms of the uh, ER alpha mRNA and in the male modest and non-significant effects. It makes us think of Debbie Clegg's work uh, in, in Dallas who distinctly identified SF1 neurons and POPC neurons that confer ER alpha gene expression that relates very importantly to energy intake and energy balance. So, yeah. No, we, we have we've done, done cortex and hypothalamus only at this time. But this is an area Hong and Melinda are going to foster an independent career. She's really going to move into this area of the gender differences and the ERF effect. It might be important in this biology. So then when we looked at gene expression, these are published data, but this is really important, an important update to the data. Before excess weight gain, particularly in the heterozygous. Keep in mind, at six months of age, the heterozygous have a normal body weight. And the increase in adiposity development in the heterozygous is not seen until between six months and one year. Look at this upregulation of HRP gene expression. And here, here it is at, at, at six months in, in homozygous, which are already obese, but this really caught our eye. And then ultimately, when we look at the, the development of the obesity here in, in the heterozygous, we see that by 12 months they are obese. But this gene expression was substantially uh, up before, in fact, the obesity developed. So that made us think cause and effect. I'm simplistic. So this goes up, the animals eat more, they get physically inactive, and that's why they're obese. Excuse me, um, if I correctly, POMC is also up? POMC was unchanged. Well, I mean, in the heterozygote, it may have been up slightly. I mean, here, here we have uh, the heterozygote at six months, but it comes back to normal. And along that line, I mean, you, you open this door, I'm going to crack it a little bit further. These animals, the heterozygotes, appear to be hyperactive at, at before they get obese. And, and there's some evidence that POMC overexpression can enhance physical activity. And so we, we haven't gone back and examined that very carefully, but by... by um, in, in, the hetero, in the homozygote, when they were obese already, POPC gene expression was normal. And we have data in the heterozygotes, which I don't show you here, at one year that it's normal then too. So we don't know what to make of that. And I'm not enough of a neuroscientist to go probing in that particular direction. But anyway, when we pair fed these animals, ultimately this gene expression for HRP was still up, although less impressive for MP1 not up, but HRP not up as much. So, Hair feeding has done something to modify the HRP gene expression. And then when we, uh, Walter Conwell the labs work with the HRP knockout mouse, and these animals, when you knock them out, have a increase in physical activity. So this whole balance between HRP gene expression and POMC seemed to play out in this very simplistic example of how HRP knockouts influence physical activity in mice that have normal amounts of LPL in the brain. But here are the data that are problematic. These data have recently been completed by Yao Ping, Wang in the lab. And what we're looking at here is that when we knock out LPL and HRP in the same mouse, and we follow them over time, here's the, the double knockout. And in fact, knocking out HRP has in fact not prevented obesity. So these relationships between HRP 
and LPL and weight gain are associated, but not cause and effect. And I need neuroscience to try to figure out what, what's, what's going on. We're currently working with a couple of people to see what other means. And I think the, the important thing is what neurons make LPL, and I think that's really a problem in the field because the, um, the current reagents that are available to stay in the LPL protein are really inadequate. And we have Audrey Benzidu's antibody, which is what's been used by Steve Young's group, and we don't find that it's capable in getting down to very uh, sensitive levels to detect specific neurons of the LPL production. But that's an area we're very interested in and acting in very, uh, very So Bob, uh, where is the next Cree expressed in that thalamus? Which neurons? Uh, I'm not sure I know, but I'm not sure anybody knows exactly which neurons in the thalamus. I think it's expressed. I think that's your first step. Yeah. Okay, so I maybe should turn back to the Max Planck group and ask them if they've done any further work in there. Yeah, I'm not sure. Or cross in just yeah. a reporter into your nuggets. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. So, quick question on the previous slide, you showed, I guess, if I'm seeing correctly, the pink lines there are your knockouts. And here it looks like they track with, the, I guess, those are wild types. The yeah, unfortunately, the bottom two is a cursor, not labeled. Yes. So, the phenotype doesn't become apparent in this cohort of mice until later. I guess what I'm getting at is it seems like the variability. Well, I think that the, the take-home message, Tony, is that you know these animals are not <laughs> any less of these; they're, if anything, more of these, right? Right. No, no, I just. Okay. Yeah, I mean, here's the LPL knockout. Here are the controls, and here's the HRP LPL knockout, which in fact look like they're, if anything, way more. Right, but I guess the difference between the LPL knockouts is you don't see any obesity phenotype. Well, that's this animal, right? Right. Compared, so, compared to these controls. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's more subtle, if you will. That's a 36 weeks in the other. Yeah. But, it, you know, it took, in, in the homozygotes, it took, uh, you know, between the three and six months for the obesity to develop. These, these studies are only done up to 38 weeks. Huh? I mean, I think they're starting to see it out here. A little, little less impressive than the previous week. Uh, does this do anything about consumer transaction or we haven't looked at the leptin signaling pathway, but we know that leptins are elevated in this animal. The data I'm not going to show you today, which is really being completed now, is that despite obesity and hyperinsulinemia and hyperleptinemia, these animals have better glucose tolerance. And they have tremendous brown fat hyperplasia. Now that's, again, something I'm not going to talk about today, but that's another aspect of the phenotype we're finding very interesting. That's actually one of the specific aims of the R1 we have in this project that we're finished out now with CLAP data. So leptin signaling, though, is not like that. <clears throat> All right, so what, what, what's uh, LPL doing in the brain in terms of the types of lipids we see? Well, if you look at the ratio between total free fatty acids uh, in the hypothalamus versus those in the plasma, there's clearly no difference in three and six months. But then we see selective deficiencies and byproducts of the central fatty acid metabolism. So here's reductions in the ratio of C18-3, N minus threes, and the knockouts by six months. These are not present at three months, so presumably uh, these are acquired for the most part, although some of them are, in fact, modified at earlier time points. Here's the C226, because uh, of hexanoic acid, et cetera. And here's an upregulation of the C23 N minus nine fatty acid, which is a, a, a product of, of essential fatty acid deficiency. So the, the whole fatty acid 
you know, database looks like these animals do have defects in products of essential fatty acids. Interestingly enough, if you look at the triglyceride concentration, all these are unpublished data, by the way. In the first paper, we showed that the, uh, the six and 12 month animals uh, had defects in, in essential fatty acids and long chain fatty acids and byproducts. But TTs tend to be up, more variable. But here's the DAG concentrations, the MAG concentrations, and the, the, the free fatty acid concentrations overall seem to be down in, in the knockout animals. Whereas the triglyceride concentrations appear to be elevated. And that doesn't make sense. I mean, if LPL's not there, not working appropriately, why would the triglycerides be elevated? Well, again, more data on, on, the, on the products of the essential fatty acids in the omega-3 and omega-6 pathways, C20 arachidonic acid, 226, 25, and 23 all show here to be deficient in the heterozygote and the homozygote. That's work done by Daniela Pondiello from Irvine. And this reflects kind of some of the enzyme systems that are involved in, in N-3 and N-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid metabolism. These are the levels that are down in the, in the knockout of the N-3 category. Here's the N-6. And so these are the enzymes that are implicated to be defective. So it's been thought for some time that most of fatty acid elongation and desaturation occurs in the liver. And when we looked at the liver, there was only an example here of ELOV2 that was upregulated in the liver with no changes at three or six months in the liver of any of these enzymes or messages. But ultimately, in the hypothalamus, ultimately we have upregulation of three of these important enzymes in desaturation and elongation. Indicating, I think, uh, an interesting new door to open further is the idea that the brain itself controls the enzymes that relate to chain length elongation and desaturation, which could be the mechanism by which uh, the essential fatty acids are preserved, even with extremes of fatty acid deficiency. So if triglycerides are increasing the hypothalamus of these mice, where are they? And so this is work of Andrew Libby in the lab, who's been working uh, diligently at this project. And we've turned to the neuron itself. So these are N41 hypothalamic neuronal cultures that we've obtained from the Belgium from Toronto. We identified these cells based on the expression of HRP and LPL. These cells make both of those proteins. And we thought these cells would be worthy of our additional attention. So what we're looking at here is adipose red staining of these neurons, indicating that these neurons accumulate with the droplets. And to pursue this further, when we, in fact, knock down LPL using an siRNA approach, shown here. But ultimately, here's the expression, markedly reduce these three different constructs we've used. LPL activity, and ultimately, an important point that I think I would be interested in. If we look at intracellular heterolysal activity, in other words, the cells are heterolysal and then we do cell digest and look at the enzyme activity, ultimately the siRNA only reduces that by 50%. And that means that intracellular lipases other than LPL are reacting against substrate. And I think this is a reason in the field of LPL that the heparin-releasable component is really where typically we spend our time. Because this is the enzyme that has access to cell surfaces and probably has access to substrate in terms of its ability to be transported to the epithelium. So here's some lipid droplet stainings and, and control siRNA transfected cells. And here are ones after uh, an LPL siRNA. We see a marked decrease in the lipid droplet formation. And then we've taken cells and we've overexpressed LPL here. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, these are actually HRP data, which confirms, I think, what we see clinically. 
is that when we increase uh, uh, HRT, it's in the setting of knocking down LPL. So here's a negative siRNA, here's LPL siRNA, and here's an upregulation of HRP. So there's something going on about the lipase and, and presumably lipid processing that relates to the regulation of the ARGP gene. And we're currently looking at the HRP promoter to see whether we can identify any sequences on HRP that might relate to the ability of fatty acids to modify this gene expression. Do you think that that's unique to AGRP-ergic neurons, or do you think that wherever LPL and lipid droplets are identified in neurons, you're going to have an expression of changes in the expression? Yeah, I can. Good question. No answers at this point. Certainly, they're very interesting to pursue that so this idea of, of lipid droplets and neurons, really nobody's been there. I mean, we know lipid droplets accumulate in a lot of tissues, but I think we've shown from these data that basically uh, lipid droplets are regulated by LPL, at least in cultured neurons. And we're trying to develop the technology using CARS imaging now to get at whole brain slices to see in the animals whether we can identify differences in lipid droplets in the animals that have knockouts of LPL versus those that don't. This just shows a, a couple of experiments Andrew's done at two different triglyceride substrate concentrations. These are self-transfected with LPL. When you're working closer to the KM of the enzyme, actually you in fact increase lipid uptake by fourfold. And you're working at higher concentrations, so you still see an increase in the, uh, the transfected cells, but uh, the wild type is also showing more in uptake. But anyway, LPL does relate to lipid droplet formation. It does relate to lipid uptake, at least in cultured N41 cells. Now, when we, we look at conditions of, of stress, and this could be glucose deprivation and or lipid deprivation, we find that ultimately the amount of neutral lipid staining reduces. So these are control cells that are uh, in the presence of siRNA. No glucose lowers the amount of lipid further, and uh, no glucose and no serum actually lowers it further. So when we stress the cells, the accumulation of the lipid is, is substantially reduced. And when, under these conditions, we see both of two days of deprivation, either DMEM plus fetal calf serum, no glucose, a dilipidated serum, or no glucose and dilipidated serum. In all these conditions, both the two and three days, there's an increase in reactive oxygen species. So the question is, are the lipid droplets part of the lipophagic process? Is this autophagy in cell preservation? Or is this a pathway of apoptosis? And we're currently moving in that particular area. In fact, the grant I'm submitting to the ADA this round is due next week, actually. It's going to be looking at why is the lipid droplet there and what biology does it relate to? Is this preservation of neuronal cell life or ultimately is this, in fact, a pathway towards apoptosis and cell death? Now, the question comes up if these animals are N-3 fatty acid deficient, can we modify the phenotype by either feeding a high-fat diet or alternatively, can we feed omega-3s? So here's an experiment in which we fed a high-fat diet to both controls and the knockouts. And we basically have the same obesity phenotype with high-fat feeding in the knockout as we do in, in the wild type. And this basically just shows that although we increase uh, body weight, uh, percent fat, or total mass in the wild type of high-fat feeding, nothing that's new to anyone, in the absence of LPL, the high-fat feeding has no additional effect. So the phenotype from LPL deficiency is not specifically related to dietary macronutrient composition. <clears throat> I didn't mention earlier, but the phenotype of obesity developed on chow feeding. This was not, you know, high-fat feeding. 
And then when the fact fed omega-3 fatty acids, here we're looking at the high-carb wild-type, uh, high-carb knockout, and here's the N-3 experiment, we in fact find no alteration of the phenotype with omega-3 fatty acid feeding. By the way, you know, these experiments all you know, take a long time. It's amazing to me uh, how the subculture world works so, so uh, to this because we can do experiments for it, but these feeding studies do take a long time. So this works uh, supported by, by the NRDK and also by the so, no, so if you will, the absence of LPL in neurons really reflects no response to dietary fat in terms of modifying the phenotype. And even though we see essential fatty acid deficiency, when we feed the long-chain fatty acids that are dramatically different in these animals, we don't correct the phenotype. So what we can say is that the, the, the phenotype of obesity does not relate to the uh, omega-3 deficiency. And so that, I think, says something, but nothing definitive. So here again is the absence of the response to omega-3 feeding uh, in the knockout animals, showing really no, no effect of omega-3 feedings in modifying obesity. Now, in closing, I'm going to turn to some of the more interesting, or at least additionally interesting aspects of this phenotype that we've been working on. And this is work at Beyond You in the laboratory. These mice also have neurobehavioral alterations. So this is the Morris water maze. This is a, a test where mice are given access to a visible platform, and then the platform is hidden. And ultimately, we look at the ability of mice to find the hidden platform. And these animals have a defect in finding the hidden platform. They ultimately find it, but then when they're separated from the platform for three days, and the platform is positioned in a new position, these animals have a lot of trouble finding it, whereas the wild type do much better. So there's there's an apparent learning and memory deficit that's observable. And is that even more dramatic in the, in the total archive? Because that's the head. Yeah, that's the head. And the reason we found heads is, you know, you people who do genetic and modified mouse research, to, to, the homozygotes are being used left and right for a lot of experiments. And so the heterozygotes, you know, they're living out to 21 you know, months of age and ultimately more available. And so we simply carry these out there. We do have some homozygote data during their time points. And the homozygotes have a similar defect, but we just haven't followed them to later in life. And by the way, I'm not showing you data at 12 months of age in cats, but there's no phenotype related to the most water maze at 12 months. So this is an aging-related effect, and I'm just not showing you the data at 12 months which shows no difference. How confident are you that those reflect something about anxiety as opposed to motor deficits per se? So maybe they're just crappy swimmers. Well, well <laughs> no, no, I mean, no, that's no, a real issue. I'm going to show you anxiety data. These animals do have more anxiety. So I think you're absolutely correct, and we've done other tests to, uh, to assure us that that's part of it. So here's animals that are showing no defect in motor activity. Swimming speed is normal, they swim well, they don't drown, so the performance in the water maze doesn't reflect their inability to swim normally. Here's a novel object recognition, which is also a more cognitive test, and these animals, typically animals go to the new object, these animals don't, uh, so we have a defect too in novel object recognition. This but isn't that could also, again, is it recognition or going back to the anxiety, that, that's also anxiety both. Right, and the manuscript under review breaks that up too. So this is only not cognition, but in fact it is anxiety. And here's evidence that it is anxiety, the, um, the elevated plus minutes. This is purely an anxiety uh, appropriate test. So there, there's, there's both a defect we think in cognition, learning, and memory, and also a defect that relates to anxiety in example. So we've not gone around to the various brain regions like the amygdala, et cetera, and tried to identify uh, how much modification is there. But nevertheless, 
there are, there's no question these animals are more anxious too. Now keep in mind, when you put them in at least uh, into the homozygous, but we have data from heterozygous to put them in the cow ruminant, they don't move very well. So I mean, there, there is an activity uh, component here that doesn't necessarily relate to the anxiety. So then we went to the hippocampus now. We're out of the hypothalamus and now we're in the hippocampus. So we're looking at a variety of genes that are involved in lipid synthesis or lipid processing. And you see we're using cortexes to control no differences in APOE, SOLA, or LRP1. No differences in ABCA1, adipose tissue triggers by lipase, fatty acid synthase, CD36. Potentially down a little bit, and that's uh, something we're building a story for actually in the culture itself. system. But no, no impressive differences. But what uh, Tian has done is actually found a very interesting reduction in, in cytokines in the brain. And Tony would be interested in talking to you further about this. But so, I mean, Tian found this down, I one beta questionably, I six questionably down, cortex also down. And by the way, in the plasma, these, these pro-inflammatory cytokines are also reduced. And I'll come back to that in a second. But then we looked at a number of genes that reflect synaptic transmission markers. And so here's GLUA1, GLUN1 uh, in, in uh, normalized expression in the cortex and hippocampus. But then when we looked at the protein, we found that GLUA1 is, is down. This is the AMPA receptor system. And when we looked at the phosphorylation of this particular transmitter, it's markedly reduced. And by the way, there's some evidence that TNF-alpha was involved in GLUA1 transcription. So the idea that the cytokines are low, and this is also low may in fact relate one to the other. And synaptophysin, which was identified by the Chinese group, the Beijing group, a couple of years ago, using a different model, down when LPL SRA was injected into the brain, this is consistent with this presynaptic marker is also being decreased. But here's the, the data in GLUA1 and GLUN1, two important synaptic transmission-related uh, uh, protein members. GLUA1 down, the phosphorylation down, and ultimately we see that this defect probably is, is the most demonstrable defect that we see in these particular animals. And when we look at the fatty acids, we also see these defects in essential fatty acids across the hippocampus, and they're all listed here for your observation. So the hippocampus demonstrates the same type of essential fatty acid deficiency, and we do have data that I'm not showing you today, but if we feed essential fatty acids to these animals at nine to 12 months of age, Remember, the heterozygotes haven't much of a defect in terms of these cognitive tests at that point. There is an improvement in, in their cognitive function. So those experiments have not been done at a later age as of yet. So the concept here is we look at the AMP uh, with a receptor. Ultimately, this is basal conditions. These are overactivation types of approaches. This is a, a review not done by anybody in my group although I have two wands in my group. But anyway, <laughs> when the activity is de deprived, such as what we find at our mice, this is a, a defect of synaptic plasticity. So this is suggesting that ultimately this alteration in the AMPA receptor phosphorylation probably relates to the, some of the neurobehavioral disturbances we see, and I think this requires certainly further pursuit. Mel or Mark Delacque in our group, it's in fact not my group, but in the same institution of working with us on this particular so what's the clinical relevance? Is this mouse phenomenology? That's what some of my grants have been criticized. <laughs> so homozygous LPL deficiency, the prevalence is somewhere between one and 10,000, like in French Canadians or South Africans, up to one or a million, which is more typical in the US. These patients have severe hypertrichosidemia. 
they get pancreatitis and they have variable cognitive disturbance, although it's been debated whether or not the cognitive disturbance is in fact this is severe hypertrichosidemia or whether it's something about LPL. We look at the heterozygous deficiency. The prevalence is 3 to 7%. These people have modest hypertrichosidemia. They appear to have increases in CDE risk, but neurobehavioral defects have never been assessed. So we, if that population is out there, I'm not sure anybody has historically been at it. If they have, they've not published it. And this is an opportunity to kind of see if there's some aberration there. What we don't know at this time is that the defect in enzymatic activity that confers all these phenotypic manifestations or is it in fact something about the enzyme protein related to other functions such as endocytosis. And we're doing work with mutants now in the laboratory that Andrew Libby's working with and it appears that there may be, at least in cultured cell substance, some role of the enzyme protein independent of the hydrolysis that may be related to the neurobiology in the N41 cell system. So let's summarize. We have triglyceride-rich lipoproteins which go over feeding. The blood-brain barrier is still somewhat puzzling in terms of what gets across and what doesn't. LPL is in the perfect position to drive fatty acids across the blood-brain barrier by hydrolyzing these substrates in the capillary bed. Possible role of LPL may be clearly I didn't mention, but these mice do not have A-beta accumulation. So we don't think that this is one of the forms of, quote, dementia or cognitive impairment that relates to A-beta. But LPL has been found to be in, this, in the senile plaques in some studies. So an LPL deficiency may relate in part to Alzheimer's disease, too. I should have mentioned that in a heterozygous condition before. So we have this hippocampal, what we think mediated defect in learning and memory and neurobehavior. And then down here in terms of the weight regulation, we think HRP is important, but now we're not quite sure how, because the double knockout doesn't, in fact, have a modification or recidivism in the phenotype. And then work I didn't talk to you today is the whole melanocortin 3 receptor expressing neurons, which are sympathetically activated and maybe are driving the brown adipose tissue hyperplasia in the improved glucose capsule. This is a very exciting area for the gamma. I chose not to, to talk about this today. But the whole pathway by which LPL drives these genes and how that relates to second-order neurons downstream is totally unclear. And we need to find which neurons make, make LPL. So simple one conclusion, I think the LPL-dependent triglyceride-rich lipoprotein sensing metabolism of the brain is a real pathway. And this does raise questions about mechanisms of energy balance, body weight regulation, behavior regulation, and glucose tolerance that have never been asked before. I mean, I think, you know, you respect the historical literature of injecting fatty acids in the brain, but this is now a physiologic phenotype that ultimately I think has meaning in terms of a new area of science moving forward. And, you know, I didn't mention today, but like the LRP1 knockout also has some behavioral abnormalities and has some, some obesity related to it. So there's other things going on now with lipid sensing in the brain that we feel uh, that we're probably to be an important part of. And now how are the important questions? <laughs> so I should mention, I mentioned funding to some extent here, and I need to take repeatedly over many years, the ADA, um, NCR, which is now NCATS, uh, the Birch Program Supporting Kong's K Award, and GSK for the Omega-3 fatty acid feeding studies. Hong Tianyu, who's done the neurocognitive work and behavioral work, and there's Andrew Levy, who's done all the tissue culture work. Walter Conwell is working on the HRP knockout, and actually he's interested in sleep uh, science, and he's a, actually a pulmonary critical care fellow who's interested in the metabolic aspects of obstructive sleep apnea, so he's working on a separate project in collaboration with the Washington State Department of and I'm going to stop there. Thank you. We'll talk. So we're going to take some questions.
Mina. So, I forgot if this was in your... Yeah. Yes. I if this was in your cell paper that originally described the next cell DLMAPs, but did you investigate the um, um, ability of insulin to suppress hepatic mucus production in those ones? You know, if, if you look at the insulin receptor in the brain, this is AKT mediated like all other insulin action. You know, insulin in the brain can control hepatic glucose production. But in addition, insulin in the brain can modify lipolysis right. and lipogenesis too. Right. And, and so it's a major effect on inhibiting lipolysis. So what are those pathways? Are those mediated by uh, vagal innervation? Mm -hmm. Is this a, a reduction in sympathetic activity outflow? Mm -hmm. Don't know, but I think we've looked only now on the cultured neurons in terms of insulin action, and insulin does increase glucose transport in these N41 cells. It's about a 40% above basal. And we've not looked at the knockdowns yet, but that's work that Andrew will be working on. So I think the idea of central insulin action in, in hypothalamic nuclei is probably relevant in some way to what LPL is doing, but that's a vague statement. We need to pursue that further. Judy? Have you looked at MCH expression? Look at what? MCH. MCH, yes, it's normal. descriptive, but yet, you know, the lipid droplet appears, at least in culture, to be regulated by LPL. What's the lipid droplet doing in a neuron? Why should the neuron have a lipid droplet? By the way, the brain has triglycerides. Not so much. Like, like fasting, <laughs> but, it, so nothing yeah, is known in Yeah, right. So, so this is, I think, an exciting area for us. We're close to having at least the initial report that you can submit on this. Yes? Yeah. Are those, are those not all my normal Normal vision? Do they have normal hearing? I <laughs> do they smell normal? I no. Well, I, I don't know. Why do you ask? Uh -huh. the uh, behavior uh, test? Did you test whether they? No, no, we haven't. Do we need to do that? Uh, I think the uh, lipid uh, profile might uh, interfere with the high resolution. Oh, okay. Or the propagation. Okay. So I need to come to Columbia work a little bit. smarter or science people. But just on a related question, when you when you first um, identified sort of the expression along the spinal cord and nutritional regulation yeah. of feeding fast and quadriquina, it brought up the question, especially since you do have a phenotype in the CNS um, or the next driven knockout, 
have you stripped out the autonomics no. and looked at expression changes and nutritionally regulated no, no. or not? No, no, we've not gone there, but certainly I think, you know, just revisiting dance days 20 years ago in the spinal cord, we, we probably ought to go there. And again, keep in mind that we do think that the glucose tolerance relates to the brain fat hyperplasia. Yeah. We're, we're clamping those animals now, in fact, this month, to, to get it insulin action. The, the evidence we have about the glucose tolerance, and I'm going a little bit tangential right now, but the glucose tolerance does not appear to be uh, an insulin sensitivity alteration. It looks like the beta cells secrete more insulin. Hmm. So this, back to your question, Nemo, it, 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 there may be something about lipoprotein lipid processing that relates to endogenous beta cell function in these animals. Tony, you had a question? Yeah, it was actually related to the I do have two questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the one is the... Uh, do you, have you measured the metabolic level in, you know, where now you have an uptake deficiency? Right. How, what's the effect on the metabolic level in the brain? Don't know. Don't know. We're not measuring metabolic And, you know, in talking to people who measure um, coates, you know, now metabolic coates has always been tough, tough to, to measure. measure. Yeah, so, true. But we've yeah. not measured that. Right. So what, the other question what, was related to, uh, uh, about the pathway of PIPA gamma because you know fatty acid and its metabolites is a, a potential lichen for the PIPA pathways. I wonder if you, and especially if yes. I noticed that your CD36 level is decreased, which is in the PIPA uh, mm -hmm. target. So I wonder if you have a look at the other targets of this pathway or any anything in that pathway, in the green, which we know PIPA or in the brain, actually in the brain affects or CD, or brain affects obesity and uh, aphasia. Yeah. It reminds me of a question David Magnus asked a couple of years ago in Dallas. And uh, we, we've done a platform of PPR alpha program related genes. None of them are modified. Uh -huh. So it, this does not seem to reflect, at least at the message level, we don't seem to have any evidence that that's what's happening. Other than the CD36. Well, CD36, yeah, CD36. It's something now. We're having some data from the N41 cells that suggest that, I mean, keep in mind, fatty acids, the, probably CD36 is the major brain transport of fatty acids. So the LPL CD36, I mean, work that I was done without a bum rat, et cetera, I mean, there's probably a story there that we're getting to evolve to. And the cultured cells that put in the brain, the messages for, I mean, you saw it in campus anywhere, not different. All right. Thank you.